Well, this sutta that um, we are now reading is a little different from the others, although it does have the teaching in it, but it also has history in it. It's a historical account of what happened to the Buddha before he was the Buddha, when he became the Buddha, and right after he had become the Buddha. Now, there are other accounts, longer ones. This is a short account, but it tells the main aspects of it. So it um, has that interest for us, maybe, maybe, that we learn a little bit about his life at its most crucial point. This was the most crucial point, obviously, because from that moment on, the teaching existed. So now, this Brahma Sahampati thought, I've made it possible for the Dhamma to be taught by the Blessed One. And after paying homage to me, keeping me on his right side, the Brahma departed. And then the Buddha says, Now I considered thus, to whom should I first teach the Dhamma? Who will soon understand this Dhamma? And I considered thus, Allah Kalama is wise, learned and discerning. He has long had little dust in his eyes. Suppose I taught the Dhamma first to Allah Kalama, he will soon understand it. It's not only that he wanted to teach it to Allah Kalama because he, is, um, he would understand it soon, but also because it is a tradition in the East everywhere that one's greatest responsibility and duty is to one's spiritual teacher. The, um, the gratitude to the spiritual teacher overshadows even the gratitude to one's own parents. And so there is a um, responsibility and so he thinks of his teacher first, Alara Kalama, the first teacher he had. And then gods approached me and said, Venerable Sir, Alara Kalama died seven days ago. And what about these gods approaching him? It sounds a bit off, doesn't it, in our way of thinking? Well, but we do say, I just knew it, or I had an intuition, or it came into my mind that I knew something was happening in my home. I should ring up, or I, I had a feeling something was wrong with my friend or even stronger than that. Well, this is stronger than that. There's a definite um, input into his mind that the uh, Alara Kalama died. And he says, and I considered thus, Alara, uh, and the knowledge and vision arose in me, Alara Kalama died seven days ago. So he understood he died. He didn't have to, and he didn't, he didn't question that knowing. Now, we are very apt to question it, and rightly so. When we have a knowing, we're apt to question it, because we know ourselves to be still impure. The Buddha was totally pure. There was no way he could question his knowing. He was certain. If he knew that Allah Kalama was dead, well, that was it. He knew it. Now, sometimes we might be well off not to question our own knowing. We might be well off to rely on it. But very often, that knowing seems to be so different from what our logic is telling us that we don't dare believe it. I have often found in my life it's much better to believe it. 
even though it sounds completely different from any logical conclusion. So he knew Alara Kalama was dead. I considered that Alara Kalama's loss is a great one. If he had heard this summer, he would soon have understood it. And so he's very sorry that he died, not because he's now not able to see him, but because he thinks that Alara Kalama would have become enlightened if he had been able to teach him. Now I considered thus, to whom should I first teach the Dhamma? Who will understand this Dhamma? I considered thus, Uddha Putta <coughs> is wise, learned and discerning. He has long had little dust in his eyes. Suppose I taught the Dhamma first to Uddha Putta. He will soon understand it. And then the gods approached me and said, Venerable Sir, Uddha Putta died last night. And the knowledge and vision in me said, Uddha Putta died last night. And I considered thus, Udakarama Putta's loss is a great one. If he had heard this summer, he would soon have understood it. So it is um, a well-known fact, and often told, that the first people he thought of were his own spiritual teachers, his own meditation teachers. But they were both dead by the time that he became enlightened. There was nothing he could do for them. It was also said, the greatest gift, is giving the Dhamma, so this is what he wanted to give them. He wanted to give them this step to enlightenment. And then he considered that. <coughs> to whom should I first teach the Dhamma? Who will understand this Dhamma? And I considered that. The bhikkhus of the group of five who attended me while I was engaged in the struggle for control were very helpful. Suppose I taught the Dhamma first to them. This bhikkhus of the group of five, he calls them bhikkhus, uh, they are usually called the five ascetics and they were his companions with the teacher it's not that he met them later he met them when he were with these teachers and they went from the first teacher with him to the second teacher but when he left the second teacher then they did not come with him they uh, practiced ascetic practices together with him and these ascetic practices were very extreme and so he says they were helpful to him. They are usually called the five ascetics because this was their main claim to fame that they were doing these practices. <coughs> I considered that where are the bhikkhus of the group of five living now? And with heavenly eyesight, clairvoyance, which is purified and surpasses the human, I saw that they were living at Benares in the deer park at Isipatana. The deer park at Isipatana is um, at Sarnath, which is just outside of Benares, and uh, it has been resurrected. There are deer there again, and um, the Mahabodhi Society is looking after it. It's very beautiful. There's a small museum there also, which has the earliest and oldest Buddha statues in it in the world, and the ruins are there of the uh, kutis that were built there when the Buddha was living there. It's not called Itipatana anymore, but um, it's supposed to be the exact site where this happened, the deer park at Itipatana, where the first discourse was being held. It's not mentioned the name of the first discourse, but we'll come to that. And when I had stayed at Uruvela as long as I chose, I set out to go by stages to Benares. Now he was walking, and to go by foot from Bodhgaya to Benares, well, it's quite a distance, it's even pretty bad by, by bus, never mind on foot. 
Between Gaya and the place of enlightenment, the monk Upaka saw me on the road. This is quite nice. Seeing me, he said, friend, the color of your skin is pure and bright. In other words, you look very bright, you know. Under whom have you gone forth, friend? Who is your teacher? Whose Dhamma do you confess? So Dhamma is not just the Buddha's teaching. Dhamma is the truth. It is a word used for uh, spiritual truth and that sort of thing. So he's asking him, you know, you're looking very well, looking very nice. So who's your teacher? What are you? What do you know? And when this was said, I replied to the monk Upaka in stanzas: Transcender of all being, all knower am I, unsullied in all dhammas, renouncing them all by craving, seizing freight. And this do I owe to my own wit. To whom should I concede it? I have no teacher. And my light exists nowhere in all the world with all its gods because I have no person for my counterpart. I am the teacher in the world without a peer, an arahant too, and I alone am full enlightened, quenched whose fires are quite extinct. I go to Kasi's city now to set in motion the Dhamma's wheel. In a world that's blind become, I go to beat the deathless drum. Well, he got the appropriate response. This monk didn't believe a word he said. Because if somebody comes to us today and says, All Noah am I. I am without a peer. I am Arahant, fully enlightened. And... Uh, I have no person for my counterpart. Well, it's a bit hard to take, isn't it? Well, Upaka thought the same thing. <laughs> now, by your claims, friend, you ought to be a victor universal. The victors like me, Upaka, are these one to exhaustion of taints. I vanquished all evil dhammas, for that I am a victor. When this was said, the monk Upaka said, May it be so, friend. Shaking his head, he took a bypass and departed. <laughs> didn't believe a word of this uh, this um, this that he had no teacher is um, also um, interesting we have in our tradition only five hand movements mudras and um, this one that the statue has there is of course the meditation one and the one below also but then there's one downstairs the big statue has it and it's a hand it's supposed to be touching the earth and this is calling the earth to witness to his enlightenment because there was nobody that he could confirm it with so he's calling the earth to witness for his enlightenment this is a hand movement it's a tradition that says that there's another hand movement which the standing statue has which is this which is no fear and then there's this one which is teaching the wheel of the Dhamma and this is what he says here to set in motion the Dhamma's wheel now the first discourse which he gave then very shortly in this Sutta is called Dhamma Chakra Pravadana Sutta Dhamma Chakra is the wheel of the Dhamma Dhamma Chakra, Chakra is the wheel Pravadana to set in motion to set in motion the wheel of the Dhamma Sutta so that's his first discourse which he gave to the five ascetics 
why they're translated here as bhikkhus I don't know it's not a not proper because the word bhikkhu arose then when the Buddha made them into monks it's more proper to call them disciples the Naris was also called Kasi um, I think it has something to do with the silk that was being transported there but I'm not sure but he's saying I'm going to Benares and um, there's no teacher I've done it by my own wit he says and the, now to be a universal victor he says yes I am I'm a universal conqueror victor conqueror I've often said universal conqueror um, he says yes I am a conqueror I've conquered all the taints so that's my conquering. I've vanquished all evil dhammas. So now Upaka says, well, maybe it may be so, friend, and goes away. And then wandering by stages, I came at length to the Benares, to the Deerpark at Isipatana, where the um, ascetics, the five ascetics were. They saw me coming at a distance. And they agreed among themselves thus, friends, here comes the monk Gotama, who turned self-indulgent, shirked control, and reverted to luxury. Now, you see, asceticism was and is highly prized in India, and it is supposed to be the way to enlightenment. Now, the Buddha, before his enlightenment, decided that that wasn't the way. He wasn't getting anywhere with it. It wasn't doing any good to him. He was just having a terrible bodily pain. And also, his body was becoming so weak that he was unable to pursue the meditation well because he had been fasting for a long, long time on one rice corn a day, it says, who knows, and uh, his body was becoming weaker and weaker, so he decided this wasn't it, and um, so he started eating properly again, and as he became enlightened, meditated and became enlightened, his skin was very uh, luminous, and uh, he looked very nice and in his robes, and washed and dressed, and so they said, oh, well, you know, look at who, look who's coming there, he's self-indulgent. He's shirking control, he's reverting to luxury. Look at him, he looks nice. We ought not to pay homage to him, or rise up for him, or receive his bowl and robe. But a seat can be prepared for him. If he likes, he can sit down. So they weren't going to have any reverence for him, because obviously he was no longer ascetic. I mean, ascetic is supposed to be so thin you can see each bone and you know you're not supposed to have a nice looking skin or, or nice uh, robes on so they weren't going to pay any um, reverence to him however as soon as I approached they found themselves unable to keep their pact one came to meet me and took my bowl and outer robe and another prepared a seat and another got water ready for my feet and they addressed me by name as friend when this was said I told them Ascetics do not address a Tathagata by name as friend. A Tathagata is an arahant and fully enlightened. Now a Tathagata, the word Tathagata, it, it just can't be translated into English. That's why we are, it's always kept in uh, Pali or Sanskrit. Gata is gone. Tata is such. Such gone. A one gone such. Well, I mean, it doesn't sound like much in English, does it? Uh, so you can't really say a person gone such but that's what it means it is suchness as it is there is nothing other than suchness there is nothing to 
for a person who is fully enlightened, there's nothing to judge or to like or dislike or even to to change or to have or to get rid of. Everything is suchness. And so he himself becomes that suchness because he himself is no longer himself. He himself is then part of all that is. And all that is is him. In, in Sanskrit, uh, in Hindi I should say, but it is a der- derivative of Sanskrit in this case, it's very often called, said, Tatvamasi, such I am, such it is. The same thing, it's again the same syllable of tat, tatagata, tat. So the word tatagata is never translated, we just, you know, just can't do it. We can say a suchness one world, that doesn't. But what he says is that the tagata can't be addressed as friend. In other words, pay a bit of respect, you know, be a bit respectful. A target is an arahant, fully enlightened. Listen, because the deathless has been attained. I shall instruct you, I shall teach the, the, you the Dhamma. By practicing as you are instructed, you will, by realization yourselves here and now, through direct knowledge, enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life on account of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life into homelessness. Now, when this was said, the ascetics answered, Thus, friend Gotama, and they're not calling him Tathagata, Arahant, Bhagavan, nothing. They're calling him friend Gotama. They are not convinced at all. They're calling him just the same as they always have. With the behavior that way and the difficult feats which you practice, the ascetic feats, you achieve no distinction worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision higher than the human state. So what they're saying is, look, when you were an ascetic, you didn't get anywhere. Um, Since you have now turned self-indulgent, shirked control, and reverted to luxury, how will you have achieved any such distinction? When this was said, I told them, a Tathagata is not one who has turned self-indulgent, nor has he shirked control and reverted to luxury. A Tathagata is an arahant and fully enlightened. Listen, because the deathless has been attained, and he repeats the whole thing again. But the because are not convinced, and they're saying the same thing a second time, and he answers them a second time, and then they said the same thing a third time. Now, when this was said a third time, I asked them, because have you ever known me to speak like this before? Because they've known him for years. They were together with, the, you know, striving. No venerable sir, because as a target as an arahant and fully enlightened, listen because the deathless has been attained, I shall instruct you, I shall teach you the Dhamma. By practicing as you instructed, you will by realization yourself here and now, through direct knowledge, enter upon and abide in the supreme goal of the life divine, on account of which clansmen rightly go forth from home life into homelessness. So he says this a fourth time. And these are very um um, traditional sentences they are, re- they are repeated all through the suttas everywhere where the Buddha instructs all the way to Nibbana the last sentence is exactly the same everywhere the supreme goal of the holy life on account of which clansmen people of good standing rightly go forth from the home life into homelessness so this is the fourth time he's saying it now I was able to convince the five ascetics 
And now there's a large chunk missing here, um, not necessarily because that is missing in the sutta, but um, a large chunk of the what he actually did say. What he said here is that sometimes I instructed two bhikkhus while three went for arms, and we six lived upon what the three brought back from their arms round. Sometimes I instructed three bhikkhus while two went for arms, and we six lived upon what the two brought back from their arms round. And what he actually did was, the Dhammachaka Pavadana Sutta is the Sutta on the Four Noble Truths with the Noble Eightfold Path. And it took him a week. And it's extremely repetitive. It's, um, he repeats it again and again, most likely because he wanted the five ascetics to repeat it after him. Because there was no way, no tape recorder, no books, no nothing. They just had to be remembered. So this is the, um, t- uh, turning the wheel of the Dhamma is are the five, four noble truths with the noble eightfold path. And, uh, the story does go that they were sitting under the tree in the deer park at Isipatana, and he kept on teaching while they two went for arms round or sometimes three went and then they brought it back, ate it and kept on teaching. This went on for a whole week. And now in this particular sutta, it's very interesting, I had never um, come across it before. What it usually said is that at the end of the teaching, the Buddha said, Anya Kandanyo sees, Anya Kandanyo knows. Now, Anya Kandanyo was one of the five. And when you see and know, it means that you have the understood experience. You know and you see. But first you see and then you know. But here it says that all, of, all five of them did. So, then the bhikkhus of the group of five thus taught and instructed by me being themselves subject to birth, age, disease and death sorrow and defilement knowing the danger in these phenomena seeking the unborn, unaging non-diseased, deathless, sorrowless undefiled, supreme surcease of bondage which is Nibbana attained to the unborn, unaging unailing, deathless, sorrowless undefiled, supreme surcease of bondage which is Nibbana, so all five did, huh? The knowledge and vision arose in them. My deliverance is unassailable. This is my last birth. There is now no renewal of being. Now, I may have said this before, but I'll say it again. And people are often dubious about rebirth. They have no personal understand knowledge of it they have nothing to prove it that that is so and the idea seems somewhat imaginary but I have often said that if you would compare that to this day and go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning you have a wonderful personal experience of rebirth now you bring with you to the next morning all the karma, all the karma you've made. You can't wake up without it. It's impossible. If you've been nasty to somebody the day before, well, you might still feel a bit nasty inside and surely that other person doesn't feel very good towards you. Just to put it on a very, very um, 
easy level. During the night, we don't know what happened. It's a small death. And in the morning, as we wake up, we start all over again. But yet, we cannot possibly be the same person that we were the day before. It just isn't possible. We cannot have the same thoughts. We cannot have the same feelings. We cannot even have the same body, even though it looks the same. But it's definitely a day older and one day nearer to the grave. That's guaranteed. So while we have woken up with the karma intact and having memory of the day before, we have no doubt that yesterday it was me and today it's also me, usually with a capital M. What happened? Nothing happened except that our karma was carried forward to the next day. That's exactly what rebirth does with the exception of memory. Because of the trauma of the human birth, which happens to the baby, all memory is obliviated. There's no memory of past life usually. Although small children often do remember in our uh, culture that's not uh, believed and accepted. So we tell the children to stop talking nonsense and to get on with their toys or whatever they're doing. So small children do remember, but as we get older we don't remember a thing. So because we have no memory of what happened before that death, we think it wasn't there. Well, why shouldn't it have been there? Why should it not have been there? And why shouldn't we bring our karma with us and have a totally different body and have that karma sitting within the mind and then getting on with it life after life after life after life after life. So if we look at it from day to day, it certainly is a little easier to swallow. This keeps going until we stop thinking that this is me. Now I'll um, change that statement until we stop feeling that this is me. We might stop thinking this is me, but that doesn't do us any good. We've got to stop feeling this is me. And when we stop feeling this is me, which means our unfully enlightened, then there is no way that the karma can be carried forward because what possible carrier can there be? A person who has no me doesn't make any karma anymore. The person who has no me acts, speaks, thinks, eats, sleeps, everything. Looks just like anybody else. Maybe a little nicer, who knows. Um, but because there's no feeling of me, there's nobody there to make karma. Because there's nobody there to make karma, when the body breaks up, the mind reverts to the unborn emptiness. And we won't discuss that one. We'll just go there, huh?
<laughs> so this is what he's saying here he's saying that the uh, knowledge and vision arose in the five ascetics their deliverance is unassailable this is my last birth there is now no renewal of being because the feeling of me is disappeared then the karma making disappears and then there cannot be a return to mind and body which has arisen out of craving to be mind and body have personal mind, personal body have arisen out of craving to be is that quite clear? any questions? Um, I was just wondering if, if the, the birth trauma um, eliminating the memory um, would the child in the womb you know, be conscious of how I don't know, it's possible mm. it's certainly possible but I don't know mm. I can't say with, with certainty I, possibility exists there are so many possibilities in this universe that we have not tasted or savoured um, that we can, you know, think it's all right like that or not. I don't know. I really don't know. Quite clear about karma and rebirth? Yes, all right. Now, now comes a teach- the teaching that he's giving them. He's teaching them and uh, he's repeating what he's um, teaching them. And the interesting part of that is, in this particular sutta, that he's not mentioning the Four Noble Truths or the Noble Eightfold Path, because that is the first <laughs> discourse. Um, this, what he's teaching them, is of course an, an enlargement upon the First Noble Truths first and second noble truth. This is an, an elaboration on it. Now, because there are these five courts of sensual desire, what are the five? Forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. Sounds cognizable by the ear, odors cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, tangibles cognizable by the body provocative of lust these are the five cause of sensual desire now we know that the first noble truth is that there is dukkha and the second that there is only one cause for dukkha and that is craving there is no other so what he's talking about here is that these five cause of sensual desire are are giving us and are the the causes for our desire and lust because when we see the form or the sound or the odor or the flavor that's when we want it now it's easy to recognize this food eh? no problem most people can recognize that very easily this food they taste something that tastes nice they want another bit of it I mean everybody does that and uh, sometimes one has to really stop oneself on purpose not to go with that desire and the same is um, with the sex urge it's uh, in the first instance a form cognizable by the eye looks good, looks nice it's a proper shape 
the, the right size and all the rest of it. So then lust arises for that. Whatever the form may be, it uh, can be anything. You know, there's no counting for taste. But um, that is what we know about ourselves without any question. And as we see that and watch that in ourselves, it doesn't mean that we blame it. It's never the right response. There's nothing to blame. We're human beings, and this is how it works. When you have you watched the birds out there fighting for their uh, sunflower seeds, I mean, there's plenty to go around. There's plenty for all of them. And yet, they bicker and fight. Well, I mean, we're not blaming them, are we? We're just watching them interestedly, what they're doing, and actually how foolish they are. Well, it's the same with us. There's nothing to blame. We're just being foolish, that's all. And the foolishness is... Um, well, it's maybe the word justifiable is a bit strong, but uh, explainable, particularly because of the fact that everybody is equally foolish. Well, it's very difficult to be different. So the, um, the lust and desire arising from our senses is not something to either blame or suppress. None of, neither one of those things work. Have never have worked and never will work. And some people do try. And this is exactly what the Buddha taught, not to suppress. Asceticism doesn't work, he said. Indulgence doesn't either. That's why his teaching is called the middle path. But what we do, what we can do, and what we, where the way is open for us, is to recognize the fact that every gratification of essential desire makes nothing happen except another essential desire which has to be gratified. That's all that happens. It's never ending. There is no end to them. Obviously, if we can get them gratified, we feel that we're quite um, doing quite well and we have pleasure. And the Buddha said that this kind of pleasure, the sensual pleasure, is gross and um, not worth pursuing what we should pursue, the pleasure of the jhanas, of the meditative absorptions, which is also pleasure, which is also worldly, it's still not super mundane, but it is a pleasure which, we ca- which he said he will allow himself. So he's uh, explaining again, as in so many other suttas, the senses. Why is he explaining them so many times? Because an ordinary person, without any noble attainment, has no other outlet for their wishes and desires except their senses. And with no other outlet, they also have no other gratification except through the senses. And a person who hasn't done any meditation or done, got any insight at all will be looking for the gratification of the senses and judge the world accordingly because that's all we know except when we've got inside there 
and recognize what's going on inside that we have actually a jewel of purity which can offer us a totally different level of consciousness which is no longer connected with the senses but is secluded from them as all these uh, jhana explanations start out secluded but an ordinary person who hasn't done any of this (coughs) (coughs) is dependent upon the senses and not only dependent but the world has no other dimension that's all the dimension it has now obviously that's extremely limited dimension isn't it just what we can see and hear taste, touch, smell and in this case it's all just the five our senses are also rather uh, faulty we can see as far as the horizon we can't look around the corner we can't see ultraviolet light bees can our ears are also not extremely uh, well made we do not hear very high-pitched sound that dogs do hear and yet dogs and bees are not as highly developed beings as we are so our reliance on our senses could obviously not be the complete and absolute truth it has to be limited it can't be any other way surely the horizon that we can see isn't all there is to this world and something may be around the corner that might be worth seeing and we can't see it and most of us even have to put on glasses to see anything so that is what we rely on when we don't have anything else that we know about so that is why this is mentioned so many times by the Buddha the the senses because our whole world is enmeshed in them everything is enmeshed in these sense contacts so if we ever take time out to check ourselves and this is very useful to do here while we're still here because here we have this opportunity watch how reliant we are upon our sense contact what we see what we hear what we taste what we touch and what we smell maybe one of the senses not so important seeing and hearing usually the most important ones and how we also react to them and this is a very um, viable way of understanding what the Buddha is trying to tell us that this is not the world this is sense contact and yet we think it's the world so he goes on about the senses so many times because we are so enmeshed in the monk now when any monk or Brahmin is entangled with an unworldly committed to these five courts of sensual desire and cultivates them with no vision of the danger in them and no understanding of the escape from them it may be understood of them thus they are bound for disaster bound for ruin to be done with as he likes by the evil one 
Well, the evil one is Mara. He gets translated any which way. And uh, now he's saying that if one is entangled with them and committed to them and cultivates them and has no idea that there's danger in them and has no idea that there's an escape from them, then one is bound for disaster, for ruin, and Mara can do with one what he likes. Why can Mara do something with one as he likes? Because Mara is the one that is telling us that those sensual uh, contacts and desires are worthwhile pursuing. Mara is the tempter, the temptation. And it is the, the one thing within us, I mean, it's not somebody sitting out there, we know that. Um, it is the one thing within us which is constantly reaffirming that it's okay, it's pleasurable, it's nice, it's fine. What's wrong? I'm not hurting anybody. And this is because why, and I've told you this before, greed is so much more difficult to see than hate. Hate is so unpleasant. Everybody wants to get rid of it. And greed can be so pleasant. It tastes good, it looks good, it sounds good. So what's wrong? course people who have hate are almost more difficult to live with and that's why they also want to get rid of it and greed people are usually quite easy to live with because they enjoy their greed and they want others to enjoy it too and this is the very important that we finally get a hang of this that we get a grip on it and see it it's not that we're going to be able to overcome it immediately that we can see it in ourselves that this is what is our well if it's our life aim it certainly isn't really a uh, very desirable aim but if it's just a um, as the Buddha says if one is unknowingly committed without watching the danger we're really sunk in them and the tempter can do with us what he likes. We'll get tempted by anything that we think is going to produce pleasure. The temptations, just like the papancha in nature, the papancha of temptations is so multitudinous, it is impossible to come to the end of it. There's always another one. And there's always a nicer one somewhere to be held. So he says that one should watch out for this evil one, huh? Suppose a forest deer were tied to and lay down on a mass of snares, it might be understood of him thus. He's bound for disaster, bound for ruin, to be done with as he likes by the hunter. So too, when any monk or Brahmin, when any monks or Brahmins are entangled with and unwarily committed to these five courts of sensual desire, and cultivate them with no vision of the danger in them and no understanding of the escape from them, it may be understood of them thus, they are bound for disaster, bound for ruin, to be done with as he likes by the evil one. He gives this uh, simile of this deer that is um, snared by a hunter. Now when any monk or divine is not entangled, nor unwarily committed to these five courts of sensual desire, and does not cultivate them, having the vision of danger in them and understanding the escape, it may be understood of them thus. 
they are not bound for disaster nor for ruin not to be done with as he likes by, the, by Mara and he gives a simile suppose the forest deer were not tied to but laid down in a mass of snares it might be understood of him thus he's not bound for disaster not bound for ruin not to be done with as he likes by the hunter so when, if the snares are there which they are the world's full of them and we are not tied to them, but we recognize what we're doing and are able to say no, then we are not in danger. But we have to recognize the danger in these uh, senses, in the greed for the sensual desire. The danger is, first of all, that there's no end to it. And also that it prevents us from seeing an absolute truth which can free us free us to the extent where no longer we no longer carry a burden with us no matter what the burden may be the freeing is complete at the end the danger of these snares of the sensual gratifications is that it takes our time our energy and it engulfs us and the limitation of the world view is such that we cannot really see beyond the horizon in a symbolic way and this horizon that we actually are able to see is so close to ourselves that it cannot possibly contain universal truth in it it's too near too limited now that does not mean that once we have seen the danger that we no longer enjoy our food people are always afraid of it and it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy a sunset and it doesn't mean that we can't hear birds sing that we no longer spend time and energy to find those things or any of them whatever it may be I'm only using a few as examples some which are not quite as gross as just eating we don't search for them we're grateful if something pleasant happens but we know that there's something much greater available to us within the purity of our own heart and mind which goes far beyond any sensual gratification so our energy and our time is freed for depth of practice and the enjoyment of the beautiful sunset can easily be tinged by the understanding that Mara is trying his level best to get one back where one was before he doesn't like to lose anybody it's very very um, protective of his subjects which we are 
now he's giving another uh, simile the Buddha suppose a forest deer is wandering in the forest wilds he walks without fear and stands without fear he sits without fear lies down without fear why that? because he is out of the hunter's sight so too quite secluded from sensual desires secluded from unprofitable mind states a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the first jhana which is accompanied by initial and sustained application with happiness and bliss born of seclusion and this bhikkhu is said to have blindfolded Mara to have become invisible to the evil one by depriving Mara's eye of its opportunity now why is that? why is one why has one blindfolded Mara when one goes into the first jhana? Anybody get any idea why one has blindfolded Mara? Yes? Because one's no longer looking out outwardly for satisfaction. At that time. Yeah. That's right. Because we can't have any outward uh, desires when we're concentrated on the first jhana so at that time Mara does not exist for us and of course this first aspect of the sentence was secluded from sensual desire and that has to be part of the entry into first jhana so we have actually if we have been watching ourselves when we're doing this had a personal experience of the fact that we're getting something much better in blindfolding Mara at this time than what we could ever get when we allow Mara to use our senses to tempt us with the proliferation in the world the uh, jhana is a much much um, more joyful state than what is usually available through the senses and if that doesn't Um, convince us well the higher jhanas should certainly convince us and this is actually their most valuable um, particularly of the lower jhanas the uh, most valuable contribution to our spiritual emancipation that in the first, second and third jhana where we have a very alert observer we're experiencing states of mind due to purity which or at least temporary purity um, which are far more satisfying than any sense contact we could possibly have and they are also not dependent upon outer condition and if that hasn't come clear to us then we need to have another very um, concentrated look when we come out what we have gained as we were in there not while it's happening but afterwards we are not dependent upon any outer condition we don't have to wait for somebody to cook a nice meal for the sunset to become beautiful for the uh, music to sound good we don't have to wait for anything we've got it within we are only dependent upon an inner condition which is concentration and that's dependent upon our ability to let go of 
sensual desire, of which thinking is another one. And as we are uh, alert to the fact that here we are independent, becoming independent, we must also at the same time have that experience that no sense contact can provide this kind of um, natural inner peacefulness, a level of inner being which we can attain in the jhanas. Now these are insights which need to arise after the jhanas and the first, second, third are perfect for that. Either one of them all three. These kind of considerations are not to take place while one is in the jhana because that finishes the jhana. But to be take to take place when one is uh, uh, coming out of them, and the other thing that is to take place when one comes out of them, just to remind you, is that they are impermanent. That they are states which are far preferable to sensual uh, contact, but still impermanent. So what we are looking at again is, interestingly enough. that the Buddha comes, uh, comes from the uh, explanation of the sensual desires to the jhanas. Um, I just want to repeat this once more in case you do read another sutta somewhere else. It's either missing here or this particular sutta does not take account of it, but it should contain first the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path before the Buddha says that they became enlightened. They became enlightened through that through that understanding and because they had done all these jhanas before with the Buddha when they were with the two teachers and then he goes on to explain about the sensual desires and now about the jhanas and he's comparing it to the forest deer who's wandering around out of the hunter's sight so we are out of the sight of Mara when we're in the jhana again with the stilling of initial and sustained application With happiness and bliss born of seclusion, sorry, it's not printed, I'm trying to find what it is. Again, with an initial and sustained application, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the second jhana, which is accompanied by, by initial and sustained application with happiness and bliss born. I'm going to start again. Again, with the stilling of initial and sustained application, I don't know why they don't print the things. Second jhana. A bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the second jhana with happiness and bliss born of seclusion. And this bhikkhu is said to have blindfolded Mara to have become invisible to the evil one by depriving Mara's eye of its opportunity. See, what we do is we are we're not giving any temptation an opportunity when we are concentrated. Now, obviously, nobody sits in, in meditation all day long, so we do provide the temptations again uh, to enter us, but um, provide that opportunity again for the temptations. However, the residue of knowing that we are able to have this satisfaction 
and fulfillment within should suffice in not making us um, prone to too much desire because we know that this kind of uh, concentration can give us far greater satisfaction there's a residue of them nothing that we've ever done with the mind doesn't leave a residue whether it's good or evil it's all there and it makes what we call this person all the residue of all our thoughts and all our reactions is this person and as we change our thoughts and change our reactions we change this person particularly its inner field of being which of course has application to the outer outer being also so then again with the fading away with the fading away of happiness Bhikkhu enters into the third jhana he has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity and is mindful the third jhana is usually called the pleasant abiding because the happiness and the bliss is um, let go of at that time and this Bhikkhu is said to have blindfolded Mara depriving Mara's eye of its opportunity I don't think I need to go into the explanations of the jhanas again because we have gone through that quite in quite in detail or does anybody have any question about one, two, three? We have discussed them, but I mean, if there's any question, I'm only too happy to repeat it. Anything? Quite clear, huh? Again, with the abandoning of bodily pleasure and pain, the bhikkhu abides in the fourth jhana, which has purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. And this bhikkhu is said to have blindfolded Mara, depriving Mara's eye of its opportunity. This is a little different explanation here of the fourth jhana. Purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. Because this is a very, very strong, peaceful state, it is usually called equanimity. And because equanimity is something that doesn't move, joy has movement in it. Contentment has less movement in it. Equanimity has, well, has none other than all mind states have uh, movement in them because it has, it is falling apart and coming together. But it is a, it's an equilibrium, equanimity. And therefore, mindfulness can become purer. Mindfulness being that, that one-pointed attention. So the fourth jhana has purity of mindfulness due to equanimity and because of that purity of mindfulness the observer cannot be noticed. See, uh, when the mindfulness becomes utterly pure it doesn't have two states. It only has mindfulness. Now, obviously, the observer hasn't vanished but we can't notice in the fourth. We only know afterwards that this is what happened. So the purity of mindfulness is, is co-joined with the equanimity and bodily pleasure and pain are completely gone.
again with a complete surmounting of perceptions of form, with the disappearance of the perceptions of resistance, with not giving attention to perceptions of difference, aware that space is infinite, a biko enters upon and abides in the base consisting of the infinity of space, and this bhikkhu is said to have blindfolded Mara, depriving Mara's eye of its opportunity. Now, surmounting perceptions of form, the, uh, the fine material jhanas are the first four, and they have fine material, fine form in them. There is form in so far that we still have equanimity, as our base of um, or mindfulness as our base of focus whereas when we go into the formless jhanas which are the next four there is absolutely no form anymore it is nothing that we can put our finger on we can put our finger on equanimity it's balance it's equilibrium but we can't put our finger on infinity of space impossible it's just infinity of space but this interesting aspect is also the disappearance of the perception of resistance which is undoubtedly the disappearance of the perception of limitation then in this case the uh, the resistance is that there is a limit and then there's another limit and another limit we resist the fact of oneness it's all there are this there are limitations there are separations with not giving attention to perceptions of difference there's no difference in the infinity of space nothing there's no difference anymore in a in a oneness in a totality there's no difference and there's no resistance which means that nothing one thing can resist another so the word limitation would also apply here again by completely surmounting the base consisting of the infinity of space is aware that consciousness is infinite a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the base consisting of the infinity of consciousness well, there's no other explanation here for consciousness base. We have discussed it. Surmounting the base consisting of the infinity of consciousness, aware that there's nothing, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the base consisting of nothingness. One of the things which we are again and again told, um, surmounting the base, letting go. If we don't let go, we can't go somewhere new. We're going to be stuck. And again, by completely surmounting the base consisting of nothingness, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception. And again, the bhikkhu is said to have blindfolded Mara, depriving Mara's eye of its opportunity. Now, these are the eight jhanas, but here's a new one, the ninth one. <laughs> Having enough trouble with eight, huh? and here's the ninth one. Well, I can um, console you. The ninth one is only avail- available to non-returner and arahants. So, you know, we'll have to wait a while. 
maybe next week again by completely surmounting the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the cessation of perception and feeling and his themes are exhausted by his seeing with understanding his themes are exhausted by seeing with understanding what's that insight seeing with understanding is insight you cannot exhaust themes without insight The jhanas do not exhaust our taints. In fact, sometimes they they may actually um, bring in a new clinging, but they do give us, when we use the insight that they give us, then they are the way to do it, because this is the way the Buddha prescribes to do it. And they give us the insight, as I said, about the sense desires, and in the higher jhanas, they give us the insight that there's nobody there during the jhana after the jhana is over of course we're there fully fledged again trying to do something so here the taints are exhausted by his seeing with understanding what does he see with understanding he sees with understanding that in the in all the bases of the jhanas, there's a still a person experiencing them. And a person experiencing them is still liable to temptation and liable to dukkha. It's impossible to be a person and not have dukkha. Even subtle dukkha. It doesn't have to be gross dukkha. It's only when there isn't the person experiencing them that we can be without. And when, when there is cessation of perception and feeling, total cessation, which is called neuroda, then, of course, there is no person. However, as the person comes out of it, that is the seeing and understanding. Now, in order to be arahant or non-returner, the neuroda experience is not necessary. It can be a stepping away from self through the past moment. Niroda is not a past moment, but it is a jhanic experience which lasts a long time. It can last up to seven days. And in that time, a person, if another person were to see such a person, they'd think he's dead. Because there's no breath to be perceived at all but the person isn't dead so if a person were to do this they'd have to be in a protected environment and um, it is a, a state of cessation the word neuroda means cessation and in this case it means cessation of perception and feeling of course the arahant has already had that uh, past moment the non-returner may use this neuroda instead of the one past moment and have that cessation, but it's not the only way to to go through to the full enlightenment stage. It has to be understood. His taints are exhausted by seeing with understanding. That's why after every jhana experience, seeing and understanding are absolutely essential. Not just saying, oh, that was nice, I'll try and do it again. No, that's not good enough. 
but seeing and understanding and the more we see and understand the more we are nearing to Nibbana and Nibbana is not losing anything except our delusions the delusions which keep us in the realm of person death which keep us in the realm of good and bad of yours and mine of tomorrow and yesterday of having and not having wanting getting rid of and all the rest of the duality and in that duality it is impossible to have total harmony and total peace duality can never provide that so we're not losing a thing we're only getting rid of delusions it's often worried people worry about it's um, annihilating nihilistic or something like that yes it annihilates it annihilates taints and it annihilates delusion so what is explained here we haven't come across before ninth jhana or called niroda n-i-r-o-d-h-a which means cessation and it is a cessation of all perception and feeling and it can last a moment and when it's a moment it's a part moment it can last up to seven days it can last seven hours two hours three hours it doesn't matter but that one moment that is a past moment where all cessation happens it's complete still point nothing happens afterwards it has to be understood otherwise we don't know what has been done so the word niroda usually and this also depicts a long-lasting um, experience it can be the moment of the past also because that is a cessation a part, the moment of cessation of perception and feeling all perfectly clear or anything so, in this one I'm just curious about if <coughs> you're a non-returner this is only open to non-returners in our hearts yeah? Mm-hmm. so if you're a non-returner and you have this neuroda you become an if you have the insight, yes. So you have to have the insight after. Yes. I am a little confused about nothing, the the jhana of nothingness. Yes. Um, if if you have that experience, then you then there's somebody still experiencing that. Wouldn't it be Oh yes, it's, it's very easy to confuse all the different um, immaterial jhanas with each other and it's mo- even quite easy to have the delusion that they are enlightenment experiences. That's why one has to be very clear what one is doing. If, if one is doing it many times and is able to discuss it, one becomes quite clear what it is. So the, uh, the experience of the base of nothingness <coughs> particularly if it follows which is number seven if it follows the sixth one uh, is a very distinctive experience and the neither perception nor perception is also distinctive and <coughs> if one falls into any of that without having any previous pathway 
one probably wouldn't know what one's doing. And I would be also fairly useless because one can't get the understanding of it. They are not so similar because in neither perception or non-perception the observer is practically gone whereas in the base of nothingness the observer is quite there. It's quite different, actually. So the observer is not observing nothingness in himself or himself? <coughs> no. Having gone through the experiences of the infinity of space and consciousness, the self has already been um, dissolved at that time. The, the self of body and the self of mind has been dissolved into in, an infinity of a totality of both of space and consciousness, of form, of um, form and mind. Um, and then there is no way to observing self. But what is being observed in the base of nothingness is a fact that within infinity of mind and infinity of consciousness, uh, sorry, infinity of space and infinity of consciousness, there is nothing in there which is either limited, can be delineated, has, uh, has form, has uh, shape, can be anything that is solid, nothing in it, empty room. So it hasn't, there's no way to get back to self at that time. It is an, the infinity has been seen. So within that infinity there's nothing solid to be found. Now all these are very much um, very helpful in preparatory steps to an enlightenment experience. But they're not enlightenment experiences in themselves. But they're certainly, if one knows what one is seeing, knowing and seeing, they are really the necessary steps to take if one wants to get enlightened. Not everybody likes to get enlightened. Does this answer your question? Yes. And the steps that the Buddha went to leading up to his enlightenment um, it did, unless I missed something, there was no pre-enlightenment experience, like a, an experience of uh, path or anything like that that was described. It was full enlightenment. Mm. And prior to that, there was no enlightenment or no uh, inkling of enlightenment. So, is that an unusual sequence? Well, what is said about it, and I think it's a later edition because people do go around asking such questions, said that you can go through all four stages of enlightenment in one sit and one mind moment. So that actually the enlightenment experience that he went through were all four stages all at once. And this is supposed to have happened also to some of his disciples when he was alive. For us it's probably more likely that we can gain, if we practice sufficiently, stream entry and uh, might even rest on our laurels there. Yeah?
which wouldn't be very wise, but it's better than resting on our laws before we do. <laughs> but this is the way it's explained. That's right. Even if the flesh would rock from the rock from the bones, mm-hmm. he's going to stay there. And while he was sitting there, then Mara came, and he sent his daughters away. And then he was able to do it. But he had already had the facility and the ability to do the jhana up and down and down and up and uh, then as he came out that's when he had the insight so it is actually what he's teaching it's very clear he's teaching that the jhanas are the preparatory steps and the insight has to follow but here what I'm saying is and he's you know from what he teaches at every level of jhana insight can be attained and it is every step, every jhana can bring insight into reality at least one portion of reality according to the portion that we have experienced in the jhana and that's absolutely essential anything else? Look closely. See if there's anything like that. Any irritation? Any viewpoint? Any belief? Any opinion? Let it float away like a black cloud in the sky. Which is what these really are. Do not hold on to any of it. Let heart and mind be open and empty. Spacious, free, and then fill them with love and compassion to overflowing So that you're filled with those two emotions from head to toe, 
no speck of yourself without them. See if you can feel a difference in your inner being. Now that you're completely filled with only love and compassion, which are warmth and caring, softness and giving. accepting embracing Let love and compassion flow out of you to the person nearest you in this room. Let it flow from your heart, come out of your pores. Be nothing but love and compassion. Let it reach to the person nearest you. Let it flow further and reach to everyone here. Giving to everyone, filling everyone with your love and compassion, which are like an unending stream coming out of your heart.
let it flow out through those people who are near and dear to you filling them with your love and compassion feel the warmth the caring the giving the reality of those states of heart and mind within you. Feel them and let them flow. Now think of your friends, reach out to them, give them your love and your compassion. friendship you feel for them. Think of people you know you work with, you meet, you see here and there, acquaintances. Let your heart be open and giving. Let this stream of love and compassion flow so it can touch all these people's hearts. Think of anyone whom you don't like or don't approve of. So 
remember views and opinions. Let the heart speak without discrimination. Let love and compassion flow unimpeded to such a person also. Think of people in your hometown, whether you know them or not. The love and compassion from your heart reach out to touch as many of them as you can. In the houses, on the streets, in the shops, wherever they may be. Give them warmth, caring, embracing, accepting, loving. attention back on yourself. Become aware of the purity of heart and mind that can contain only love and compassion. 